0: And welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us in studio, we have New York Magazine columnist and author, Mark Harris. Hey, Mark, we've brought you in because we wanted to have you on the show for a long time, but it's an auspicious morning. The SAG Award nominations have just come out as we're recording. The Golden Globe nominations came out two days ago. There's way more awards news to handle than pretty much any of us can, so we need to do as backup to help us uh, process. I all mean, of Mark this. is
1: probably the most erudite, like Oscar prognosticator that exists. So, like, we're, we're that's why we have him on because we, 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 you know, we're dummies compared to him. So, and in yes. fact, I probably won't
2: say anything for the whole sure. show. We're just
0: going <laughs> to sit gonna here silently. Here. This, this is days. way too much. For Ha, 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 ha. So Mark, I figure a good place to start might be something that uh, you were tweeting about before we started recording and the wake of the SAG nominations because uh, you know there were surprises in them as there are any time and I think one of the big things is that big films like The Post or Dunkirk or The Florida Project didn't get ensemble nominations and there's a stat that I think it's been 22 years since something that didn't get a SAG ensemble nomination won Best Picture and you were kind of suggesting that stat isn't super helpful for us this year. Why is that?
3: Yeah, I, I'm sort of not a huge believer in trying to divine everything By stats like that, because at the end of every Oscar season, the the morning after lead is always, you know, for the first time in 22 years, some random thing happened. I mean, all of these rules about like, you know, no movie that didn't get a screenplay nomination can ever do this. And you have to get an actor, an ensemble nomination from SAG in order to do that. They're all rules until they're not rules. But, you know, I think one thing that we inside the bubble of watching the whole season tend to forget is that Oscar voters don't actually by and large pay attention to or care about stuff like this (laughs) that nobody is going to be thinking about the SAG ensemble nominees when they are filling out their Oscar ballot they're going to be thinking about what they like the most and and you know especially when we're talking about movies that haven't opened yet like The Post and Phantom Thread uh, you know it's 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 just absurd to believe that the SAG votership, which is a really randomly selected and largely TV-driven group of voters, mirrors the Oscar votership in such a deep way that that you can sort of make with certainty a, a prediction like that. I mean, are we are we really prepared to say that *A Shape of Water*, which led the Golden Globe nominations and The Post, which tied for second, are both out of the running for Best Picture because they didn't get a SAG ensemble nomination. That just seems too extreme to me. The the usual thinking is that
2: SAG is a group of actors. Actors are the largest group of Academy voters. So there's a natural sort of overlap there and affinity, right?
3: Well, SAG is a group of actors-ish, like I'm in SAG. Yeah, <laughs> that's how far you can get from being qualified to like when when you know Leonardo for DiCaprio what? What won you- for The Revenant and said this means so much because it comes from my peers. He's talking about me, and I'm only in SAG because I got an after because I did some kind of Cinemax roundtable fifteen years ago that I had to join after for right. so. So, you know, uh, this isn't like, you know, the Academy Française or something, you know, the the, the cream <laughs> elite of actors, you know, yeah. it's a huge, huge group. And, and within that, I think the nominators, everybody votes for the winners in SAG, but the nominators are actually, they change by random lottery every year. Right. You get invited to nominate. And, and if you do, presumably you get sent the, the screeners and stuff, although I'm already hearing this morning that... Um, People got the post very late in the game um, that they didn't – some of them didn't get Phantom Thread at all. So, you know, it's – take it's, it with a big grain of salt. system. Yeah. yeah. Do
2: you have – can I ask you uh, an impertinent question just to kick it right off? <laughs> Your husband wrote Lincoln, right? And so right. you were there for the whole Spielberg-Lincoln yes. thing. Um, so do you have extra super insight into the post land that to share with us?
3: Oh, uh in because that was you a Spielberg mean in, movie in, in terms, terms of, of what's going on with the post specifically? Yeah, like, not really. I mean, okay. you know, uh, I mean the the when I said I I heard that um the 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 post screeners went out late. I was just picking that up from tweets. I right. I, I don't know yeah, that yeah, from yeah. inside. You know, but I but I think for and for instance, you know, some of the nominees today from sag that were slightly surprising like Judy Dench for best actress for Victoria and Abdul and Steve Carell for best supporting actor uh for Battle of the Sexes those were screeners that I know went out early and widely and yeah. and that really mm-hmm. does help and and sure. when you when you look at past sag nominees who did not go on to get oscar nominations often they were um the the results of very vigorous and and Early screener campaigns, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which isn't cheating. I mean, you know, it's it's like do do what you do what you need to do to get a nomination. But but it does, you know. I I was looking at two years ago, and I tweeted this uh, that that only thirteen out of twenty SAG nominees went on to Oscar nominations that year, just two years ago, which is not a great percentage. So. There are real reasons for uh, to to believe that there's a disparity between SAG and the Oscars. Yeah.
1: What do you think is anything that is telling about this crop of nominees? Like, is there anything that – I mean, I know we're we're now sort of saying, like, that we can't use these necessarily as a one-to-one kind of predictor of the Oscars. But, like, is there anything you saw from this morning's list that was like – you were like, okay, that means such and such for the Oscars?
3: You know, there's always a danger in – this kind of thing because like what i saw confirmed my pet theory which right. is mine you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um but but i've i've felt from pretty early in this season that it's an exceptionally widespread group of top tier contenders that we're we're farther from being able to say Movie X is the front runner for Best Picture than we have been in my memory of doing this. Um, because it's not, I don't even think you can say it's down to two. I mean, I, f- I felt like there were 10 or 12 movies that were legitimate contenders for Best Picture nominations a month ago, and... I think the SAG nominations only confirmed that in that some movies that were looking more and more, I mean, two movies that were looking more and more on the margins of that top 10 or 12, Mudbound and The Big Sick, were two of the movies that this morning got ensemble nominations. Um, And some of the movies that were looking very, very central, The Post, The Shape of Water. Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name did not get ensemble nominations. So. I still think there are about 12 movies, and that's not even counting outliers that people are really enjoying right now, like Coco and the Disaster Artist or or a real left field choice like Wonder Woman. Um, Not even counting those, there are still about a dozen movies that I don't think would shock anyone by getting Best Picture nominations.
0: I've really been struggling myself to tell how much the lack of ensemble nominations or some surprises like having just one nomination for Call Me By Your Name, how much it indicates a lack of support. Or maybe I think uh, in line with what you were saying, Mark, that we can't say that this means they don't like Dunkirk or they don't like Call Me By Your Name. There's just too wide of a range of affection. Because looking at the list of the individual acting nominees, there's such a wide range of film represented. And no way all of them are going to make it in there. It, it does seem like it's just it's spread to the point that you're going to see a lot of things getting left out by not having enough room for it
3: right i mean dunkirk is not a movie that that you walk out of thinking wow every performance in that was just a magnificent little jewel a lot of people walked out of it thinking i thought those three guys were actually the same guy (laughs) and then you know but but that's and and why did tom hardy have to wear the bane mask right again again. but but, but that's sort of like I mean, that's not where Dunkirk's power lies. So if it gets a Best Picture nomination, which I certainly think it will, it's, it's not, you know, its heart is not in ensemble acting. Um, it is
2: crazy that between the Globes and the Sags, you've got one overlap right if you look at drama at least so i guess you got you got get out yeah, yeah. and and Lady Bird on the other side right that's um, that's
3: pretty amazing though but yeah there's it's um,
2: it's it's an incredibly spread out feel
3: i mean i think we know some things from the last week obviously three billboards has a great deal of support uh, yeah. you know to performed really well uh last week with the um Broadcast Film Critics uh, Association uh, did great with the Globes earlier in the week, um, and and did I think led all all movies today with with sad. But of Why course, you- only two of those, only one of those three groups has anything to do with the industry. the right. o- the others are are journalists. Right. Do you think
2: that woke Twitter's kind of non enjoyment of of three billboards is having will have any impact can have any impact or is that just totally under the radar or or, or above the heads of the academy i mean lena dunham's presumably aware that the film is problematic
3: so <laughs> i i mean i don't think woke twitter has much of an effect on anything <laughs> i i i think one reason woke twitter is always so angry is it's daily realization that the world is not woke twitter right yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> but i do think that there's there there's an issue i mean i mostly really like three billboards but i think i think there's an issue which is slightly akin with the issue with Itanya that could become a louder issue as we get closer to oscar voting i mean i i, I said the other day you know i think one problem with Itanya is that it only works the story only works if you make Nancy Kerrigan a non person, you know, that that she is this device. And you know, this year of all years I mean Martin McDonough is a really interesting writer. He 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 is really ruthless. He he yeah. you know, you, you to to call uh, three billboards manipulative, I think, would be to elicit a response from him on the order of "I don't care." I mean, he or exactly, <laughs> yes. I mean that that's his point. You know, he he, he creates he creates characters in order to uh, explore a kind of ethical dilemma or a situation. And one issue with three billboards is, you know, we know that the Sam Rockwell character has done something absolutely terrible to a black man would the movie work if you actually saw that would the movie work if if the first scene was actually sam rockwell enacting that i mean it's it's i think to the extent that there's going to be a backlash against three billboards or or not let's not say backlash but people who don't like three billboards i i think of a real problem with the fact that the the invisible black man in this movie is 100% a device Yeah. to give, you know, it's sort of like Martin McDonough thought, what can I do to make audiences hate Sam Rockwell's character at the beginning in a way that will make them think they will never be able to like him again? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, the raped and murdered daughter is a device. You yeah. know, she mm-hmm. exists to put Francis McDormand in a certain place. And when you combine that with... The problematic, to use Twitter's favorite word, um, fact that uh, Frances McDormand's African-American friend seems to go to jail because of her and get out and not really have any issues with that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's set in Missouri, of all places, in some ways, given everything that's going on in the country, given everything that's gone on with the Academy in the last couple of years – I think this would be a strange year to reward three billboards when you have alternatives. That's not to say it couldn't happen because it's also a very resonant in other ways, a sort of listen to women movie, um, which – you know, could help it.
1: I, I think we should also make a distinction. You know, between what we're calling woke Twitter and you know, people like G- Gene Demby at NPR did a long Twitter thread. Like, like writers of color are coming out about this movie in in a very lucid and and yes, you know, way that's that I want to listen to. Fair know, thing to you say, know, um, right?
3: Like, I like three billboards. I don't mind manipulation as a writing tactic. I really don't because I think all movies are manipulative, and I don't mind a movie that's really naked about it. But the 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 argument against three billboards is a legitimate argument. Like the the people who have a real problem with this movie, I think, have a fair point. And one that Richard has made very eloquently as well, I should say.
4: Yeah, I I really didn't like the movie either and I'm only like woke-ish Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. <That's laughs> me, woke ish <so>. Twitter.
0: Woke adjacent.
4: <laughs> yes.
0: As a friend of all of ours, Joe Reed, pointed out, you look at the Sagan Ensemble Nam Nations, and three of the films were directed by non white men. And uh, one of them, The Big Six, stars Kumail Nanjiani, and Three Billboards is kind of the whitest of the group. And again, woke Twitter is not the one that votes for the Oscars, especially. But when you see kind of this, this broad spectrum of representation that's so in line with what the Academy has been trying to do over the last few years, and then you have something like The Post, where you also have a woman in the lead who's kind of standing up against these unfair systems, it does feel like there are a lot of other Options to kind of get the same vibe as three billboards without necessarily kind of wading into the minefield that's there.
3: Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing this year is there are so many movies that can lay claim in different ways to being the right movie for to represent the industry, the academy, the country right now that I don't know if they cancel each other out or if that's going to be the, the, grounds on which people choose I mean it's it's really it, it, it's hard to know when so many movies are resonant how big a factor resonance itself is going to be well and can I just clarify <laughs> um, you
2: know I think my point was I was being flippant about woke Twitter but my, my real sort of question is whether this kind of critical debate, intellectual critical debate will play into the academy's thinking or not like is the academy attuned to that type of thing or not and i think that's that's it it remains to be seen like can somebody crystallize it in a way that is both not totally unfair to martin mcdonough but also will resonate with academy members where they say like okay maybe something else this year
4: i think i think it was on a slightly much different level but i think some of the debate around La La Land last year, which sort of dampened the hot, hot buzz it had at the beginning of its campaign, might be responsible for what we imagine to be a, you know, neck, nose and nose, neck to neck race between Moonlight and La La Land. Like if there hadn't been that occasionally woke Twitter, but other people debate around La La Land and its merits, um, you know, I, I see that. Have, as having really yeah. decided the victory for Moonlight, so
3: it's it's so hard to know. I mean, I think you're right to say that it was probably a close race, given the the split between um, picture and director, and certainly the people who think that the SAG ensemble nomination is the be all and end all will will uh, take ammo from the fact that I think La La Land did not get a an ensemble nomination last year, did did um, and Moonlight did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the dynamic was slightly different because I think La La Land from very early on was the perceived front runner. the 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 Oscar uh, predictorati was behind it from the fall festivals, and you know Moonlight was this little little movie. Um, you know, the kind of movie that that began. It's run by uh, you know people saying, "Well, you know, this is the kind of movie that never has a chance of getting nominated for an Oscar, but it's really deserving." And take a look at it. I don't think anything is the Goliath this year. The way that La La Land was last year. We've kind of been, we've
2: discussed it as maybe Dunkirk and The Post are, have been the Goliaths, but, but they're both sort of shaking right now. But you also, but the, but then in the Moonlight slot, you've got like four options. So it's just so spread out. I think the
1: other thing to, to, to note about La La Land, especially and Moonlight, is that ultimately it really just comes down to who Faye Dunaway wants to say one best picture. I mean, so, (laughs) like, what are we even (laughs) talking about? (laughs) It's just, it's just up to her.
3: Um, but no, I, but I, but I think I mean I mean do we know that Moonlight won? <laughs> well, <laughs> who really knows?
1: But I think that that's what's made this year. I don't know if you agree, Mark, but like I think you know the rest of us on this podcast. Like it's been a really exciting year. It yes. might be a little bit vexing because we can't you know make these broad you know prescriptions about like what's going to happen. But like this ultimately is a good thing, right? That we're ha- that, that we have these kind of confusing nominations, and you know this gets left out and that, right? Uh, would, would you? I, I think it's a great
3: thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know as as someone who's who's dabbled in predictions for many years the you know there's no more fun aspect to this than an uncertainty and confusion i don't want a year when when uh uh everything is is clear and laid out months in advance i mean one of the reasons i was whining earlier in the season about the seeming unanimity for uh the idea that Gary Oldman is going to win best actor for Darkest Hour which he still may was like let's let's use our function to keep the conversation as broad as possible um sure. and not narrow it down and and I think um I think it was Chris Tapley from uh Variety who pointed out uh this week that so far now of all these different critics groups uh, something like 6 or 7 different men have won best actor prizes yeah. so far including Gary Oldman and and I mean, to me, that makes the whole season really fun. I, I could imagine, you know, the Best Picture Envelope being open and it's completely credible to me that someone would say the winner is The Post or the winner is Three Billboards or the winner is Get Out or the winner is Dunkirk or the winner is Lady Bird. And, you know, I've there have been a lot of Oscar years where I've said, I don't know which of these two movies it's going to be, but which of these five or six or seven movies it's going to be, that's a really interesting year. Yeah.
0: I think what last week we kind of decided amongst ourselves that the one thing we really feel sure about is that Willem Dafoe for the Florida Project is at the very least the strong front runner, if not a guaranteed win. And then I think I'd add to that that Call Me By Your Name would win adapted screenplay. And beyond that, it really feels like there's not even like... Two people in the running in every category. There's like three or four you could conceivably see wedding, except maybe supporting actress, but even that feels like it could change.
3: I, I think that's right. I, and it, it does sort of surprise me that, like, I didn't, I really like Willem Dafoe and I really like the Florida Project. Um, but if I had been asked to guess at the beginning of the season, where would unanimity land? It would not have been on, <laughs> on Willem Dafoe. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that, like, Best Supporting Actor, as it usually is, is so unbelievably rich. I mean, you have uh, performances like Michael Stuhlbarg in Call Me By Your Name that barely getting any attention. Um, You know, whatever... Issues you have with three billboards, uh, Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson are pretty extraordinary. In that Army Hammer is really good, and Call Me by Your Name, Richard um, Jenkins, Richard Jenkins in, in, in The Shape of Water. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there are performances that that aren't even you know close to being discussed at this point zach alfanakis and tulip fever i mean it's really, <laughs> <laughs> really crucial stuff i mean that yeah. that that top tier is so rich that 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 people who at the beginning of the season were sort of in the discussion like uh mark rylance um mm-hmm. in in dunkirk yes, right. or, or people who in another year would i think be really in the discussion like jason mitchell and mudbound um mm-hmm. i mean it's a great group of potential choices so the fact that everyone has gone for willem defoe is a little bit surprising to me but I, on the other hand i don't think the job of early critics awards is not to bore me i mean if if they <laughs> if they want to if they all feel that way then great is it is it possible you mentioned
2: mudbound which is netflix obviously is it possible we are seeing the beginning of a too much prestige uh, akin to too much tv i mean i it, it would be I feel like I'm saying it out loud for the first time and thinking it for the first time, because it seems entirely unlikely because all the energy seems to be moving to TV. And yet here we are. I think, I think one of the things that you're saying that we felt too was six months ago. It was like, what kind of a year is this? There's no movies this year. And all of a sudden we're like, wow, there's a, there's an embarrassment of riches. Right.
3: I mean, I, I'm never going to complain about a glut of too many, you (laughs) know, (laughs) good movies. I mean, I think one thing that happened this year and, and, One of you can instantly point to me the example that I'm missing um, or forgetting about. But usually there's like two movies at the end of the year where, you know, they've been on people's Oscar lists all along. And then they actually get seen and everybody's like, well, that sucked. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the lists get redrawn accordingly. Mm -hmm. But but this year, I, I think just about all of the stuff that we were all hoping would be good has turned out to be good or in some cases better than good. What what What's the bad movie that I'm, I know I'm forgetting something.
4: I don't think it's anything bad, but we have talked on here before about Battle of the Sexes and Stronger, both of which seemed like they would yes. go in some way, maybe before people even saw them. And it's not that they're bad movies, they just sort of- I think of they're good
3: movies. So were yeah. fine,
4: yeah. fine to good movies that just sort of failed to make an impact when they went into wide release.
3: Right, and there's always that, here, I mean, I feel bad for Jake Gyllenhaal, who I think deserved a nomination for Nightcrawler, I think deserves a nomination for Stronger. I mean, he's turning yeah. into one of those people who just like chronically is sixth or seventh. Mm-hmm. And, and really, you know, I mean, I think the problem with Stronger was audiences just didn't go. And, and you know, to, yeah. to there, there's nothing more lethal for, for a fall movie that hopes to be in the Oscar discussion than to just... Fall short to only be seen as good, not as really good. And then to not be seen by an audience, that's, that's a killer.
0: We can also talk about the uh, the persistence of downsizing, which at this point is only represented by Hong Chow, who's a really interesting kind of breakthrough performer. But that may be the least loved movie that's making it onto all of these nomination lists.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I tweeted about this uh, on Sunday night, I think. But like, I was watching one of those variety actor on actors thing, and it was Hong Chow and Diane Kruger, uh, who's I guess not in the running for In the Fade, but not really. Um, but she won Best Actress at Cannes for it, so she's she's already got her prize. But anyway, I was watching Hong and i've long not sat well with that 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 not the performance the performance is great but the role as being you know issuey uh about how it's it, it functions in downsizing but listening to her talk i started to rethink it and i was like well look you know if she is saying this who am i to tell her that she's wrong this is this is her experience as she you know this it's you know she's you know, Vietnamese American. This is about a Vietnamese character. Like maybe she is more the authority on what is problematic or isn't than I am. I mean, not maybe, almost definitely, um, <laughs> or definitely. No qualifier needed. Um, you know, so I don't know. I and I and I wonder if that's the kind of arithmetic that voters are, are making, or if that's just not even in their heads. Like you know.
3: Well, I'll I'll give you one voter perspective, which is my husband's, because he mm-hmm. uh, yesterday picked up the downsizing screener and looked at me and said what is this and I think that's like an important (laughs) like Tony Kushner we're talking about Tony Kushner downsizing has not opened yet Um, and voters Academy voters have a big big stack of screeners I think they've probably gotten uh, in the neighborhood of 70 right now depending on what branch they're from so and it's not like Uh, you know, one a day comes in an orderly fashion, you watch it and put it away. Like they stack up and then around Christmas and New Year's, it becomes this frantic, like, uh, can I really watch that two and a half hour subtitled movie? Do I need to see this documentary? It seems to be about something horrible. Maybe I'll watch Murder on the Orient Express. And, uh, you know, it becomes this kind of ruthless survival of the fittest. So uh, while, while we are, Busily discussing the sort of racial problematics of mm-hmm. downsizing, I think it's a movie that's barely on the radar yet for most academy voters yeah. and and you know how much it gets seen will will determine as much as anything about how it does with the Oscars and how much it gets seen as in partly going to be a function of what people read about it and what kind of reviews it gets when it actually opens. And, you well,
2: know, you know, and you mentioned your, your husband being an Academy voter and, um, and, and I mentioned earlier that you guys, I know went through the whole process, the Lincoln sort of best picture race and the Daniel day Lewis race and all that stuff. What, did you learn, did, did that experience change the way you cover this stuff? Was there one big takeaway or or a series of takeaways from that, from seeing that all up, up close? It did a
3: little bit. The Lincoln year was a particularly sort of brutal year in terms of negative campaigning yeah, I against that. any number of movies. I mean, mm-hmm. it was the year of... Well, sort of most memorably, probably the year of Zero Dark Thirty, which which sort of went from, you know, hero to pariah between the time that the, you know, the New York Film Critics Circle gave it Best Picture and Best Director. And by, by the time Catherine Bigelow and Mark Ball were there to accept, they were practically like giving a deposition in their defense in front of the audience. I mean, the mood had changed that much. And there was negative stuff about Lincoln. There was negative stuff about Django. There was – um. There was a huge kind of angry campaign against Les Mis. I mean, it was a complicated, yeah. Yeah, weird was a year. crazy year. And and <laughs> you know where the mood seemed to change every day. And and a couple of things I remember about it are one one big takeaway was you know to to try to remember that you you are covering human beings like they don't they don't deserve um, pity because it's a really kind of nice. <laughs> thing that you know you should have everyone should have like their biggest problem be you know three or four months on the award circuit but this thing that can happen of like you actively hate and want to demolish the movie that is slightly less good than the movie that you want to win does not flatter any of the people who participate it in it and 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 the other thing i learned and um i mean this has really stuck with me too oh That was also the year I'm now remembering of Silver Linings Playbook, and whenever David O. Russell's movies are in a race, the screws of tension seem to tighten just (laughs) that much more. Um, I mean, it was not necessarily the most cheerful group of, of contenders. I remember... One person who shall remain nameless, I was talking to her at the very end of the season, and I said, how's it been for you? And she said, it's great. I've always wanted to hear Anne Hathaway give 27 speeches. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, and the thing I do remember was, was someone leaving at the end of the Oscars and saying, I really, really don't mind losing the award. I really, really do mind losing three months of my life. That was a crazy year looking back on it. But but the feeling that there is a kind of mutually reinforced pact of paranoia that that is enforced by the people who run these campaigns on the people who are being campaigned for, which is – Somebody else, usually it used to be Harvey, now it's not going to be Harvey anymore, but there will always be a scapegoat. Somebody else is running a really ugly campaign, and if you don't do everything you can, you're letting the bad guys win. So, therefore, you know, please whore yourself at every stop on this circuit as per our orders, or you will be handing this over to undeserving people. Like, there, I, I can't tell you how deeply it goes into actors, directors, writers the the feeling of like you must do this for the team. Yep. Is that going
2: to change w- w- in the post Harvey era or I don't think not. so because
3: yeah. because even then Harvey was becoming more a convenient concept than right. an actual perpetrator. Harvey was the stand-in for like the person who doesn't deserve this. And you know, Harvey always did like the things that the last ditch things that will make you kind of laugh and cry like yeah. you know remember like 2 minutes before the oscar nominations or the the awards suddenly it was decided that silver lining's playbook was a big important statement about um Oh, uh, mental, mental health oh yes. yeah oh and, and who illness. can forget imitation game honor the man under the film right
2: there's usually a little congressional he- hearing at some point where the film the people involved in the film had to testify yes and I've, some I, and I've always
3: heard i don't know if this is true but i've always heard that um jennifer lawrence refused to go to washington to do the sort of let me jennifer lawrence testify about the importance of mental illness and and if, if that is really true you know all the better that she won the oscar but but yes uh, that was the year that as you know that the imitation game solved homophobia forever um so by turning a real life out gay man into a closeted
1: traitor but yeah, yeah. right exactly
3: uh, and 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 i think we're gonna see well hopefully it won't get that extreme but i think we we will probably see the the the, the misbehavior that desperation and hunger and ambition breed as we get later in the season. Although, so so far, far it looks like a very collegial group, right? I think so. And, and yeah. you know, I will say it was like a, a, a pretty collegial group when I witnessed all of this. Because, like, you get to know, like, you know... Chris Terrio was nominated for everything that Tony was nominated for. He wrote Argo and, and um, that was the year of uh, Lucy Alabar and um, Ben Zeitlin uh, being nominated for Beasts of the Southern Wild. And, and y- you do see these people over and over again at event after event after event. And if they're nice people, which they mostly are, certainly those people I named are nice people, there becomes something sort of collegial about it. There's not – I think people imagine that there's real enmity sometimes between competitors – uh, that is not something either as a person who's lived the the cycle as an insider a couple of times or as a reporter the other times I've ever seen. Yeah. It's like summer camp. You want your bunk to win the thing at the end of
1: the summer. But like, you know, you just all make friends with each other, right? Like That's <laughs> right. kind of how it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm friendly with a screenwriter who was uh, in the whole process uh, a couple years after you were and, uh, in, you know, witnessing this. And, and she kind of said the same thing, which is like yeah, there were a couple outliers where like everyone was like that person sucks. But for the mo- for the most part… <laughs> Yes, there, there always are those people. Yeah, for
3: the most part, everyone just seems like happy to be
1: there, I guess. Yeah,
3: Yeah, because also mathematically, if you've paid any attention to this, which you probably have if you're in the mix of it, you know that there's at best – like at most 10% of you are going to be in this again this time next year. But, you know, this is – like I, I don't think anyone, you know, except Meryl Streep – Thinks like, oh, this is definitely going to happen again, and maybe even Meryl Streep doesn't think that. You know, it's it's if you know that, like, oh, this is like, I get to be in the cool kids club for one cycle, I'll take it, and I'm going to enjoy it, and you know, give me one of those sliders and a glass of Chardonnay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? You know, you know, you 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 wrote something
1: about you know the movie for the moment or whatever, like, uh, and and how we are sort of grappling with you know politics and 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 Stuff that is, makes this whole thing seem rather petty and, and, and small. But like, do you think that however the Oscars go or whatever, like, did they does that actually have any value in terms of the national conversation? Does, what does it mean, do you think? I mean, like, Moonlight Winning felt triumphant in a way because it was about people of color who were queer and, 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 and you know, in the dawning new age of an administration that is adamantly against both of those things, you know? So
3: right. how do you see that? I mean, Oscars don't solve anything. And I think even most artists would say to you that art doesn't solve anything. And it's not the job of art or the Oscars to solve things. But that doesn't mean they're meaningless. And, and you know, if, if you view the Oscars as a, a kind of ever-shifting portrait of how the Academy sees itself and how the Academy wants its industry to be seen. Yes. It's meaningful that, that last year, the sort of collective judgment of the Academy um, was that they wanted this low budget movie really made by outsiders about, um, you know, gay people of color to represent the year a little more than they wanted uh, sort of classic looking musical with two very popular movie stars to represent the year that like and a that white, white person explaining jazz so right that was <laughs> 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 which i never like <laughs> i did not have don't a great so woke, objection to don't that be so i mean <laughs> twitter <sorry. laughs> you know like yeah. i still don't understand jazz so it didn't work right you know that's a nice Like the Academy is writing a new year in its history every time it gives awards. And this was like the 89th year of its history. And in its 89th year, it did this thing that in its 79th year, many people would have said is absolutely impossible and never going to happen. And when you couple that with the fact that like – Uh, What I think is really an under under told story, which is the dramatic membership change of the Academy in the last uh, four years, it is one quarter new, which is amazing. I mean, imagine if you changed the American electorate by 25 percent and that 25 percent was composed exponentially more of women and people of color. You know, it it baffles me when I hear some people say, oh, well, it won't really make a difference. It's still the Academy. It's like it makes a huge difference. And we have not begun to know what kind of difference it will make it'll take a few years but this is a really big deal i think that's another
2: reason why this is a year where we're keeping so many options open we haven't just closed the books and said the post will do it or dunkirk because it's like hey this academy can give it to moonlight it can give it to call me by your name or ladybird or get out
1: and i think that, that that you know the the sort of traditional idea of what was an oscar bait film that's been that's been not the case for longer than maybe the academy, even you know, since it's changed. But like, I think especially now, and something I wrote about in the special issue essay about best picture race, is that like we don't have any idea what a best, what what an Oscar bait, like you know, like it's not a period costume drama anymore. Like that used to be kind of the thing. So so I think that we're kind of seeing that we're we're just like that that there is no you know sort of prescribed oscary prestige film
2: i mean if get out gets uh, a but message, uh, the ptsd is real for those of us who've had our hearts broken so many times that's why that, well, the moonlight course, yeah. was that kind of thing where yeah, of course i, I mean we, we joke about it on the podcast but last year joanna was very you know really enthusiastic about moonlight and i kept just being like Not don't get happen. your hopes yeah. up like but it
3: but it happened and that was huge well i think we saw it, we're Thank seeing it this year it. in a way with get out because it's yeah. it's the it's the oldest movie in the race now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the second highest grossing movie in the race in the United States, just behind um, Dunkirk. But right from the beginning when it opened, you know, what I was hearing was no, 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 this can't possibly be an Oscar movie. It's too, you know, genre. It's too early in the year. It's too, whatever euphemism people used because they didn't want to say it's too black. And like, <laughs> you can't, do that anymore? Like those arguments, yeah. you know. Yeah. If 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 we were really sort of talking about traditional, as you said, you know, costume dramas being like Oscar bait, we would all be sitting here talking about the greatest showman. Yeah, which, which and why I do- aren't we? I know, <laughs> which I mean, we
0: definitely are. It's,
3: it's really the elephant in the room, uh, isn't think, it? I think we're. I think they've allowed
1: social sentiment to be expressed <laughs> on Twitter. So yeah, um, no, it's true, and I think that that is really great, and I think that Get Out hopefully and i don't really i don't think it is it's not an outlier it's not it's not a rare weird thing that happened in 2017 i think that like movies like that regardless of release date regardless of size regardless of scope like are 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 more and more in the conversation you know i mean i think anecdotally like with the new york film critic circle like they've you know myself included ushered in a lot of new younger members in the last 2 years and you see that already reflective in in the vote, I think, you know, something like Tiffany Haddish winning for supporting actress, like, like, I don't think that would have happened a few years ago. So.
3: Absolutely. And you don't need to, I mean, you're, you're right. The, the membership of the New York Film Critics Circle had th- this year and last year, it's most considerable change in a while, but you, you don't need to change the membership of any group by very much right. to have a huge impact. Yeah. You right. Know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so
1: okay, so, so we we haven't done it really this season, but um in the past we have done a kind of uh, to kind of close out an episode. We've done a kind of go big or go home. <laughs> so I want Mark Harris's. I am going home. home. Like, <laughs> 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 besides Defoe or something smaller, like, like what what what's a big bold Oscar prediction you want to make or can make or feel like you
3: you know um worth The top. I, I'm not bold. I mean, the top the top 8 Oscars, if you count this two screenplays as top Oscars, which I always do because we need to respect writers more, yes. are going to go to at least six different movies. Oh, that's, I that's like my, that. that.
4: This is something we talked about. I you know, I didn't I didn't want to interrupt you guys earlier, but um th- when you were talking about Willem Dafoe earlier and you're sort of surprised that this is the rallying point. Something we talked about last week was Willem Dafoe as being like representative of the Florida Project. Right. Of them like wanting to acknowledge the Florida Project. So choosing to pin that on Willem Dafoe. And I really like what you just said Mark about like in in any of these top categories we could see someone as representative of a movie. Here's here's Laurie Metcalf. That's our nod for how great Lady Bird was. Et cetera, et cetera.
1: It's very uh, Lindsay Lohan breaking up the tiara at the end of Mean Girls and tossing it <laughs> everybody right like like everyone gets a little bit which i think is cool you know yes certain that means that certain people will be locked out of you know things but
3: although i could also totally see the headline the next morning being um dunkirk leads oscars with five wins or something like that so
1: you're thinking harry styles and then uh,
3: (laughs) who knows (laughs) i'm pretty sure dunkirk is gonna get all five best supporting actor you know (laughs) just brown haired (laughs) boys yeah yeah
4: the,
0: the turtleneck one.
3: Uh, yeah. the French one. <laughs> there is a there is a blonde the, one. The right? other turtleneck yeah. one.
0: Well, thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. Uh we will take your bold prediction to the bank and uh then you no, 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 our no, 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 no,
3: no. Take nothing take nothing I say to the bank, please.
0: <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing more from you throughout award season and having you back on soon. Uh so thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So now we're going to share the conversation that Richard had with Michael Stuhlbarg who I'm going to say is the star of Call Me By Your Name but he's also the star of The Shape of Water and then he is part of the gigantic ensemble of The Post. Uh Nicole Sperling had a conversation with him that was on vf.com this week and called him the award season MVP. I mean Richard does he just have this glow about him at this point for being in every good movie that's come out this fall?
1: He does, but he's also just a really centered kind of quiet guy and 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 you know seems to be riding this these several waves very, very calmly. So yeah, we talked mostly about Call Me By Your Name, but I'm um, touched on shape, shape of Water in the post. But I kind of zeroed in a Call Me By Your Name because, uh, you know, he has this defining scene in it toward the end of the film that uh, I think speaks to a lot uh, about the movie and about us and the year and life and everything like that. So it was a, it was a treat to get to talk to him and hear about some of the process behind the making of, of that really special movie. Well, I have the pleasure of sitting across the table from the great Michael Stuhlbarg. Michael, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, I was about to say that you have two big movies coming out this season, except you have three. You also have The Post, uh, <laughs> yeah. where you play Abe Rosenthal, who is the editor in chief of the New York Times. Is that right?
5: Uh, I think uh, publisher, uh, a editorial editor, or managing editor, okay. one of the two. Yeah. Forgive me; yeah. it was yeah. a while
1: ago. That is quite a it's quite a stacked cast. Yes. I mean, yeah. So a- an extraordinary group. We had Carrie Coon in here a few, a few months ago, and she. Was you know was was pretty excited about about that despite you know she said oh I was only there for a weekend as a short part but it was a small part but um I think everyone pops like oh good you all get your due yeah good yeah but you have a, a little bit more to do in Call Me By Your Name and The Shape of Water which are the other two big projects that you have this season and they' there are two movies that we. And me personally, and we at VF as a whole, really like, you know, are really kind of fans of, and and you're, you know, an integral part of both of the, the, you know, those films, and so I hope we can talk about both. I think Call Me by Your Name, which is out now, more of our listeners have had the chance to see, so maybe we'll start with that. Can you just to start go back and tell us how you came onto the project? Did you know Luca? How were you familiar sure. with the material? Or
5: um, no, I um, I got a call from my agent saying uh, there was this beautiful script. Uh, that she thought i should take a look at and i did and i saw that it had james ivory's name on the cover which has never happened to me before (laughs) and it's one of those things you i was absolutely taken back by because i've i'm a huge fan of all the merchant ivory films and i knew of luca guadagnino from his film i am love with tilda swinton and uh, it was right before a Bigger Splash came out. So right. I read the script, was very moved by it, and loved what he thought I might be right for. I loved the sentiments expressed by the character uh, that I got to play. And uh, the heart of the film was extraordinary. And um, I was unfamiliar with the novel that it's based on, the source material by the same name, Call Me By Your Name, by Andre Asiman. But uh, I was delighted to be thought on, and I I leapt at the opportunity.
1: Was there anything in reading the script that indicated to you what we see on screen, which is this kind of rambling natural quality to it? You know, is that on the page, or is that more when you're on set and you're working with
5: Luca? Um, No, it it was a combination of elements. I would say that if you were to read the screenplay, you would find it to be very, very specific. Mm Mm-hmm. Scenes are broken down into little moments here and there. And I think one of the extraordinary things that came out of getting to see it was the combination of elements that Luca really insisted upon, I think, in his vision of of this particular story. Not only was it photographed exquisitely by our DP, Soyambu Muktipram, but Luca allowed his camera to just linger on what was happening. These country roads, the boys bicycling, whether it was a lake, or uh, all the elements of the home in which we we shot. He wanted, I think, to draw people in, and he, he let people sort of, I think, by watching what was unfolding, just sort of find their way in and breathe combining the the music that he thought was appropriate all of that was luca that sort of uh, meandering quality that you may have hit upon was was that also he uh, apparently he only used one lens to shoot the entire film it was a 35 millimeter lens which apparently is the closest thing to the human eye so mm. there was something about the camera lingering that perhaps suggested, you know, a different way of people watching the events.
1: It's a real sensory immersion experience, and I think that that probably is part part of the reason why. Very much. It really feels like we're we're there. Yeah, and I think also you know the acting is so um, intimate, and and you guys really seem like a family, mm-hmm. and you you know these these family friends who come to visit. There's such a a, a natural rapport there. Mm-hmm. How does, does that just, is that just like good casting or how does that come about?
5: That's what they say. 90% of, you know, of, of any good fortune on a project is, is casting well. And I think he saw something in every single one of us that seemed something, you know, primal or essential to who uh, the spirits we were trying to <laughs> resurrect were uh, every single every single one of us everybody just seemed to be who it was they were playing and we all got on that was the other thing as well is that we all just had so much fun and
1: um you said that each um actor had a kind of specific set of challenges what would you say that yours were with with playing i mean he's a very erudite you know intelligent uh, guy you you seem to be the same way I mean was it so, so what was it that <laughs> was difficult um,
5: well I mean when someone hands you a project and they say okay you're going to play a Latin and Greek scholar you you ha- uh, uh, dabble in archaeology and art history it's such a, a wealth of information that you start with what's given you and you sort of work backwards uh, so all of those things were uh, I started to ask lots of questions and uh talked to a classics uh, friend of mine, a friend who had majored in classics, and I, I met a, a Latin and Greek scholar when I was at, in Milan for uh, a day, which was delightful, and she taught me a little bit about what it's like to stand in front of a class and to you know, uh, uh, demand things of your students and how I might be able to incorporate some of that stuff into a moment here or there. Um, that kind of stuff, plus someone who's fluent in Italian, which I'm, I'm not. So it's, it's a lot to absorb because when you do these things, you want it to come off as effortless as possible. And so it's just a lot of, uh, ingrained stuff, uh, repetition and, um, and research. And I find that work to be, uh, really, uh, essential to trying to create something new. You know, yeah. With every job, it's a new challenge because the material is new, and hopefully, those new influences can change me in one way or another to allow my behavior to change in a different way. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I grew up with a a, a history professor father, and so <laughs> that aspect of the of the performance and the character really rang true to me. So that, I think, oh, good. that seems to have, yeah it paid off. I think um, the
5: one element that I, surprised me in the doing of it was. Uh, on the first day when we all sat around Luca's dining room table, he lives in Crema, uh, where we shot the film, and he said to us he wanted our storytelling to be suggestive of one of those summers that we may have had in our lives in which something was revealed to us at a young age, whether it was... Who we were or a particular love that we had or a path that we may want to follow. And he wanted us to do the tell, uh, to tell the story with as much love and light and laughter as possible. So the combination of perhaps some of the professorial dialogue I was given mm-hmm. combined with Luca's suggestion of it being full of Fun and, and lightness and buoyancy was a really fun combination of things because it could have been a, a plodding sort of a, a situation and it wasn't at all. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I'm now curious what your story was, but I don't know if that's too personal or… or Which story? Oh,
5: you mean for me in Yeah, particular? Yeah,
1: when you guys were sitting around talking. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. What your summer was.
5: My summer was in 1984 when I was 15 so years old. So pretty close in timeline. Strangely, one year yeah. yes, it was a year later. Uh, our story in the film takes place in 1983, I think. Um, yeah, mine was 1984. I was turning 16 years old and I uh, had applied for a summer drama program at Northwestern University. It was called the National High School Institute. They call it the Cherub Program and it was one of these things for high school students all over the country come there and they study their particular passions mine just happened to be drama but there was mathematics there was science there was English there were all different kinds of things and I met kids from all over the country, 126 kids, all of whom we all had to get up and do a monologue on the very first day. And I was the only one out of all 126 who embarrassed themselves by not knowing his monologue thoroughly enough. I went blank after my first line, which is a great lesson. I learned so much that summer. Uh, I got to do my first Shakespeare play and Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, I saw a play at Steppenwolf that changed my life, Sam Shepard's Fool for Love and I guess the parallel that I draw is that something cracked open in me as a young person that sort of said, "I I love this art form. I love what we get to do, and Northwestern in the summertime is quite humid and buoyant and beautiful. There's something very sultry about that place. So that was my first immediate parallel, is that I met a lot of talented people. My heart kind of opened up in a way that it hadn't ever opened up before. Yeah, it was a very special time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something that's so well captured in the movie is this sense uh, at that kind of age that that, that liminal spot right yeah. before you're a adult, a young adult, where the world just sort of reveals itself to you, yeah. and you're like, oh, there's more. Yeah, it's not just this little. While well, this is lovely. I'm so curious. And whether that's an actual a career calling or a person or, a, you know, and something. And I think that that's so well articulated. And then you have that gorgeous monologue at the end of the film or toward the end of the film where that you kind of then get to impart that, which I guess is your sort of last professorial act in the movie <laughs> yeah. is you're giving one last lecture in a way to, wow. to you know, yeah. I, and I think it just, it works so well. I mean, I'm, I, and to know that that all came from you guys sharing your own, Stories with each other. Yeah, and
5: we shot the film in chronological order as Mm. well. So it was one of those instances where you get to know people and you adore them. And you get to spend this really full, rich time together. And that was the last thing I shot. Uh, Wow. And it had such resonance after watching Timothy and Army and Amira and Esther and Victoire, everybody, uh, bring such personal... Bringing their souls, really bringing themselves to each of these roles, giving themselves to the storytelling and all the fun we had in the doing of it, it was kind of this moment uh, of of profound intimacy that I was grateful to be uh, uh, the one to yeah. to articulate it.
1: Yeah, it's quite a quite a scene. One of my favorites of the year, for sure. Thank you. It seems like, I mean, just from what, from maybe, maybe it's your, your choices, but it does seem based on what you've done since, um, A Serious Man, you get offered a variety of different things. You know, mm-hmm. you played a sort of, you were an alien in Men in Black 3, mm-hmm. right? I yep. love that character. Uh, and you know, you're a, a professor in Call Me by your name. You're a spy in The Shape of Water. I mean, it, do you see that that's true? Like that the scripts coming across your desk are all kind of all over the place or?
5: Um, it, I have very little uh, to do with what comes my yeah. way. If I'm, if someone thinks I'm right for something, then it sort of comes uh, uh, in my direction. But I love to be challenged. I love to have curveballs thrown at me. Whether it's having to learn Italian or Russian or, or you know, playing a, a space alien who's lived many thousands and you know, millions of lives. Anything that engages my imagination, that will move me or make me laugh or make me think. These are all things that that uh, i look for but yeah i, I sometimes i uh, it's it's even more special when something comes along and surprises you and sort of think oh my goodness i never saw that one coming i wonder what it is in me that they see that makes them think i can do this and it's it's really thrilling actually to give it a try
1: do you get nerves about it? I mean, is it, scary? is it scary to walk on set and there's Guillermo del Toro, there's Steven Spielberg? Or?
5: Well, hopefully before you walk on set, you've had some time to do your, your, sure. your research yeah. and yeah. your work so that you can be ready when you show up. But, I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, I had a scene in Mr. Spielberg's Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis. The two of us had this sort of private scene together where he's trying to get me to vote a particular way on the 13th Amendment. And it was one of those majestic days where uh, I had been studying all day long for, you know, my lines and everything. And they finally call me after a whole day of waiting to shoot the scene. And I, I, I pick my head up from all of my notes. And there's Steven Spielberg at the top of a ramp smoking a cigar. And I come up to him with a big smile on my face. And I turn to my right. And I hadn't met Daniel during the whole shoot. And there he was as Mr. Lincoln. And you know, it was kind of, it's one of those things where you just sort of see something and you think, I can't believe where I am. And how wonderful to have these kinds of opportunities to work with these people that I've respected for years and whose careers I've followed.
1: So Shape of Water, you know, is, is pretty far afield from call me by your name or the post in some ways but i think that it and call me by your name have some connective tissue in that you know they're both about love and they're Mm. about people sort of not defying the world but sort of you know a stolen away kind of love you know a sort of uh, secret love in in a way but you you are sort of on on, to the side of that as your character in shape of water is this kind of Spy with a heart of gold. I guess is that is that fair? That sounds fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am curious. There is one particular scene that I'm a kind of squeamish guy, and I was at the a screening in Telluride, and it was I was loving the movie. And then there's a very violent scene that yeah. you're in toward the end. What is that kind of scene like to shoot? I mean, it's bloody. It's it, mm. you're you're kind of howling. It's, it it seems really. Miserable. I think it was raining too. Yes, it was.
5: It was part of it was fake rain or movie rain, shall we say, and the other part of it was real rain. It just happened to be raining all night that night. Yeah. Plus, uh, it was cold, very cold, and we were trying to uh, shoot all night and to uh, try to get what we needed to get done before the sun came up because we were on a very strict schedule. That was probably one of the more or most challenging things i've ever had to do primarily because of battling the elements some that were natural and some that weren't uh it was a it was a huge challenge so i'm
1: curious you know you you have three movies out this year you also had fargo uh you're very busy <laughs> is that by design i mean are you are you somebody who just likes to be working all the time or? i do love yeah. to
5: work and uh uh, it it isn't by design though it's just by circumstance it's sure. really one of those instances where it's been a, a wonderful year for for all different kinds of projects for me and i'm grateful that they thought of me for these roles and i leapt at the opportunities when they came to me yeah mm-hmm. it's been a it's been a strong uh, exciting challenging year
1: do you have where you're talking about getting different kinds of roles or doing different things challenging yourself is there anything you haven't done that you would like to
5: absolutely there's all kinds of things I haven't done that I'd love to I'd love to do I'd love to do a story in the world of of music whether it's jazz or rock and roll I'd love to do a western I'd love to uh, do something you know that surprises the heck out of everybody uh uh I'd love to transform my body uh uh to have the challenge to do all different kinds of transformations. Um I'm open to anything and I I love that about what I get to do is that it's it's all about seeing if I can, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know. Uh, throw me something that i don't know if i can do and let's give it a shot (laughs) (laughs) well
1: something tells me that you 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 would be good at it um if if the work from this year and and past years uh is any indication so Mm -hmm. michael thank you so much and congrats on your big year i mean it's really exciting and thank you they're
5: special films so thank you so much thanks
0: so you can find the rest of us at VanityFair.com writing about award season and much more. You can follow us on Twitter at little gold men and we're on our own. I'm at Katie rich, Joanna, Joe wrote this and Mike,
2: Mike underscore Hogan and Richard Ryla's
0: and Mark,
3: Mark Harris, NYC.
0: This episode was edited and produced by Jordan bell. And thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best takeaway from being a guest on little gold men goes to Mark Harris.
3: I still don't understand jazz, so it didn't work.